Hey everyone, welcome to episode 13 of the So This Is My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya. And as for today's guest, I'm going to let her introduce herself. Hi, I'm Hilary Yip. I'm 15 years old and I'm the founder of Minor Minus, which is a startup that wants to create an immersive, fun online product for kids worldwide. Hilary was only 10 years old when she founded Minor Minus. When minor refers to kids and minus refers to the bird that learns new words and phrases quickly without forgetting. She's known as the youngest CEO in the world, has been featured on BBC, South China Morning Post, CCTV and Yeti, and has spoken all over the world, including at the 2020 Global Women Forum in Dubai. In this episode, we talked about everything from her pitching her initial idea of minor minus to a large crowd that included Elon Musk, to conducting customer testing, their main findings, creating their MVP, growth tactics, her approach to social media, crowdfunding, and the answer to the issue of privacy on a platform that was made by a kid, Hillary, for kids, and how parents are involved in minor minus as well. I also interviewed Hillary's mother, Joey, who will be our next guest in episode 14 next Sunday, so stay tuned for that. But I can tell you this now. These two episodes are by far one of my most favorite episodes, and I don't want to keep you waiting. So are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. Hi, Hilary. Thank you so much for joining me today on this interview. Thank you so much for having me. So I came across your profile because you are very well known for having started Minor Minus since you were 10 years old and it's been such an incredible journey. Obviously, there are so many people who are going, who's this person who's so young and had this amazing, amazing idea and is just grown to such an extent to so many different countries. And I thought to start that we would go all the way back to 2016 when you were 10 years old. And I understand that your mother actually sent you to summer camp with your brother to learn Chinese. And that was something that really kicks off the whole journey. And I wonder what were the languages that you were speaking at home? Was Chinese a prominent thing? What was the situation like? So for us, the reason why we went to Taiwan was more of an issue with Mandarin than Chinese as a whole. Because we all speak Cantonese when we're home. When I speak to my relatives, it's usually Cantonese. But because my brother and I went to an international school, we didn't have the same exposure to, let's say, reading, writing, and even just speaking in Mandarin with others. Given that the Chinese-speaking community isn't just Cantonese, it is important for us to know a bit more. So that's partially why we went to Taiwan, to get the immersive experience and to just use the language rather than have it set in a situation where it's justification and just negative association. And was it a huge shock for you to have to use Mandarin all the time? It was more like a game because I remembered when we were in the airport, my mom told us that this month we'll be going for 28 days. And your challenge is to speak as little English as possible. Because I'd recently read a different book called Dumpling Days by Grace Lynn at the time, I was fascinated with this idea because the main character also went to Taiwan for exactly 28 days. So, and so what was the situation like? Was it as exciting as you thought it would be or was it a lot harder than you thought it would be? It was honestly a lot of fun. I made a lot of good friends and just being in a different community, being in a different place for a month, does kind of expose you to different cultures because even if it is somewhere where you speak a similar language, the customs on the ground, the food is different, and it's just something entirely different to be there. 
And so you had that entire experience. You came back a couple of months later, you learned about this competition, which is the AIA Emerging Entrepreneur Challenge in Hong Kong. So I understand that that intrigued you and you wanted to join. So why was that? Were you always interested in starting a business? Honestly, not really. Before then, I just thought entrepreneur was a weird word to spell. But I did decide for some reason to just look through it because when you send me a link, I will read any word that comes up on the screen. And through that website, a concept that businesses can make a positive impact kind of stuck in my mind a bit. Because I like debating, I do read a lot of news. And what you usually see is the evil corporates, big tech being the horrible monsters of boogeymen. But the idea that startups and businesses could make a positive impact for good kind of stuck with me. And I was thinking about how I could take part and learn more. And I understand that you took part and you grabbed a couple of your friends to join with you. So how did you convince them to join you? Were they also intrigued by the idea? <laughs> the three of us, we didn't really like playing tag or playing football. We were the group that hung out in the library. I was like, here's a competition. It sounds like fun. And we spent two weeks thinking of the most stupid ideas. Honestly, like a pen with a little maze in it, which honestly was just ripping off Smiggle or just trying to find different iterations of Let's sell cupcakes for charity. And the day of the submission, the two of them dropped out. Yeah. And you had like three hours to prepare something, right? What was it like? Did you not feel like you just wanted to quit? Just more like, I want to do this. It was no good idea back then. Now I have three hours to think of something. It was less pressure because it was more like an optional thing. But I found that the pressure did help in giving you a sense of urgency rather than just letting it sit there and not really engaging or grappling with the idea. So after those three hours, what was your idea? What do you present to them? For the submission, you had to have three slides, three PowerPoint slides where you had your idea clearly elaborated. So I crammed a ton of information onto the three slides going, first of all, language learning sucks. The way you solve that is to get kids to talk to each other, therefore exchanging their mother language and having the added advantage of making friends, therefore combining fun with learning. Of course, I didn't put it as eloquently. And during the first pitching day where you had to try and get in, I entirely forgot one of the cue cards that I had in my mini pitch. Oh no. <laughs> Was it okay though? Like no one noticed. Okay, I got in. Yeah, you got it. And you got to the final where I think Elon Musk was also presenting. What was that whole experience like? That was very, very exciting. I barely knew who Elon Musk was when they first started mentioning him because what 10-year-old goes in depth about Tesla? But my mom told me a bit about him. I decided to conduct some research and I got really excited because it was at the central government quarters. I was able to take a look at where the government usually holds their press conferences. And it was just more like this surreal moment where it's here's a massive group of people, a thousand people in the audience, and I am going to speak in front of them. So that was crazy. I wound up practicing my pitch for weeks. To this day, I can still recite bits of it off the top of my head. Oh, wow. so what other little bits could you recite a little for us? Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I have a few questions. First of all, how many have a, of you have children? Can I please have a show of hands? That's brilliant. So you basically ensured that you got the crowd engaged as one actually did something rather than just listening. The key part about memorizing that pitch was that my slides entirely crashed on the day. So that caused a moment of panic, really, because you had your slides crashing and the thing behind I think I remember you were doing the clicker right and they was like oh it's not working it's not working I saw that but you, you were not flustered that was what amazed me you just carried on and say all right we'll just go on so were you not scared at all inside 
honestly, I was like, oh, that's not good, is it? Yeah. After that, you end up winning the first prize and the business prize awards. And what was that like? Honestly, it was a bit of relief because I was reciting those two pitches for weeks and weeks. And it was more of a question of getting out of the way and trying to do as good of a job rather than the idea of winning or not. And I understand that a lot of people approach you after that and your mentor approached you as well. Was it overwhelming to have all these strangers, these grown-ups totally approach you and be like, this was an amazing pitch, I want to talk to you more? Yeah, it was different because I was a kid. While I liked to speak about my opinions, I wasn't necessarily super outgoing. I was more like the kid who sits in the library. So that was a bit of an eye-opener, the idea that my idea actually is of some interest to the adults. I actually had a few people approach me that day and I wound up having some meetings in the months after. My mentor obviously helped me a lot and he's honestly the main reason why I decided to keep going. But my first ever business meeting outside of the competition, I still remember the place. It was this place in Tin Hao. It took a long time to get to the place. We got lost. In that place, I was told to just draw what I wanted to do ideally on the website and had some feedback from a different developer. So that was also pretty cool. And what was the conversation like with your mentor? I think he took you through the whole process of a company to IPO, right? He did. What do you remember of it? So I remember he sat me down and pretty much started with a very interesting opening, telling me that failure is inevitable and it will come. As a 10-year-old kid, I was just like, that's an interesting way to start. But then he kind of elaborated more, going on to explain that in every process of every journey, there'll inevitably be failure. There is no avoiding it, but it is something that ought to be embraced. While the implications of that didn't really sink in during our first meeting, it is those words that kind of ring after the longer you wind up doing your business. So that was the starter. We then went on to talk about what exactly are startups and what do they honestly do. While I had a vague idea from the competition, he went into a lot more depth of this, explaining how to iterate, how to get to beta testing, what's an MVP, and pretty much going so all the different stages of funding and all the different types of investors. The idea was to kind of lay out the whole roadmap for me so I understood what I could do next and to understand that it's a lot more than just a little kiddie project, which inspired me a lot and just made me decide, let's do the first step of getting some users to just test it out. Was that where you transitioned to having conversations with your family about taking it forward? What was the conversation like with your family? It wasn't necessarily this life-changing moment where you talk to your parents and you come out at the end of it going, we're starting a business. It was more like, let's just do a bit more. Let's get some users. If anything, it'll be a fun experience, just like going through the competition. And it was just more like these gradual tiny steps that just kind of snowballed into what Minor Minus is today. And so where were your first customers coming from? So we went on Facebook. I pretty much wrote up Here's my concept. I want to go further. If you parents are interested in sending your kids to do some trials with me, please send me your details. Then my brother and I ran a few tests where we got kids to teach each other. Myself and my brother also take part as users to see what it would be like to get kids to teach each other their own languages through a Zoom call or Skype at the time. During that trial, we saw really mixed results. We had a baby, a literal baby, with her mom saying, 
pretty much using her as some sort of puppet. She says hi. Oh, wow. To kids who were incredibly shy, or on the other hand, kids who were incredibly outgoing and didn't want to stop talking. So, mixed results. From that, we got a few key takeaways. First of all, video calls aren't necessarily the best way to get kids to teach each other. Why was that the case? Well, kids found it really difficult to break the ice, especially for shyer children or for younger kids who might be freaked out by being forced to talk to someone for the very first time. So that was the key takeaway. The other takeaway we we had was if Minor Minus was to be a global business, there was no way we could do it through video calls because fundamentally you'll have a problem with time zones and children are not going to be up at awkward hours. In fact, now it's about like 8 p.m. Hong Kong time. That's bedtime for six-year-olds. So from that, we continued to iterate and eventually came up with the idea for our MVP. And so what was your MVP at the time? So our MVP at the time had um, two key components. First of all, on the kids' end, we had the videos. So for a while, we dabbled in YouTube videos to try and make the content more engaging. The idea being that you would engage with the content, then go to speak about it in the second part, which would be groups. We pretty much created group chats where children could create them in different languages and create their own topics, thereby giving a language aspect to it and to ground it to the real world through something you're interested in. The results we got from the MVP was inspiring to me because we saw that kids went so far beyond just languages. My initial expectation was pretty much how to talk about flowers in, let's say, Japanese and having the conversation centered around and the purpose being to learn that language. But the results we got was pretty much kids teaching the stuff they were passionate about, language being less at the forefront, but yet still a crucial part. So I know this sounds ambiguous. So what does that critically look like? For example, before um, we shut down our MVP, we saw a few kids talking about the pandemic in its earliest stages. We had seven-year-olds from Hong Kong and um, Malaysia talking to another kid in the States, explaining what their parents were doing to keep them safe, the signs behind washing their hands, and just why you ought to wear a mask. I found that really inspiring because these kids were just seven years old. I had to just check again in their profile to, to see it, and I was honestly amazed. This wasn't just the pandemic group. We also saw kids talking about climate change. We saw kids talking about art, talking about briefly philosophy so that group was quite short-lived to be honest or even one kid who was teaching over 15 languages and i mean like, i understand that when you first started there were only four of you that grew to all these people so what was it like i mean those initial days before growing up to all these different groups of people those initial days were interesting to say the least we had myself my little brother a kid in taiwan and a kid in america And it was just the four of us for a good while. And it was honestly a bit of a confusing time for me because it was a question of what are we going to do to grow the business? I tried many different things. It was at that that time where I did most of my pitching. I went to Rise, which is the biggest startup conference in Asia. I pitched so many different places, went to networking events, and yet we were still persistently stuck with four users. And who were the four users, though? It was you. Myself, Alexis, my little brother, a kid in Taiwan who was seven, who was just browsing the app store and came across Minor Minus, and a kid in the US who had a very similar story. I was bored, browsed the app store and found you lot. And then after that, so what did you do that changed everything? 
So it was honestly just pitching a lot, going to as many events in Hong Kong as possible, speaking to people, and just building these connections. We wound up having the BBC contact us out of the blue. We don't know who talked to them about us or how they got word of it, but clearly those pitching had some impact. And it was really after the BBC interview where things started to take off for us. It was in that year where I had reporters coming in every other week. Oh, wow. Which was a very exciting time for minor minors. And that's how we managed to grow really quickly in the span of a few months that year. I think it was like the ninth month and you were already having like 4,000 downloads from 20 different countries, wasn't it? Yeah. By the time we closed the MVP to transfer data over to our next version, we had users from over 60 countries. It's amazing. And like, where were you thinking that it was going to go at the time? Or were you just trying to scramble to get on with it because you didn't expect such a load of people to come? Honestly, I wanted to just keep it there for a while because when there's a big influx of users, that's when you can really see what's going to happen due to a wider variety. So we spent about seven to eight months just observing our users, trying to engage them on the app and see where it led us. And that's how we decided during that period to just take as many notes as possible on what we do for the next version and see if minor miners had moved beyond languages, what exactly we were going to do with the business. And what were the most significant findings that you had at the time? I guess a few of the most significant findings would be, first of all, kids love to teach. Second of all, peer-to-peer learning environments are incredibly important. And finally, the idea that parents ought to be included in this community. So for the first version, we pretty much had parents having the role of just monitoring their children. We had parent and children accounts. Kids' accounts were linked to their parents to ensure safety and to make sure we didn't have kids' data to make sure that we were as safe as possible. So parents just supervised and made sure that the kid was okay. With version two, we're going to open up parent communities where we'll be able to have two concurrent databases of parent groups where they get to talk about parenting or issues that they find important, whereas kids also have their own communities. Because of these two important databases, we would A, make sure that there's a dedicated space and B, ensure that kids have their own true social community for ourselves. And these two databases interact with each other to keep them safe and to make sure parents have an international board where they can talk to rather than just localized mums groups. And I think you have a very interesting approach to privacy as well, because you think that kids should have privacy, but at the same time, they shouldn't be interacting with people, for instance, that shouldn't be there on that platform. So how do you introduce that? So I believe that for us kids, we need to be able to have access to the internet, but that doesn't mean that we put ourselves into a dangerous situation. Why do I put it this way? Today, we live in a world where we kids have very limited options when we go online. Either we have video games, which honestly waste time. Either YouTube, which is also can be valuable, but more often than not, is just more passive activity. Or we have educational products where it's the same stuff as school repackaged with shiny colors. They all have their own flaws. The idea of being too passive and the idea that it's just the same thing that you learn in the classroom. The final option that you have is to go on social media, which if you're like over 13 can be dangerous enough, or if you're underage, even more so. So Minor Minus' approach was to create a situation where it's fun, safe, productive, combining the best aspects of these free situations for kids. I think that we kids need to be able to socialize with one another online because that's honestly revolutionized how adults interact with each other and that we kids are either put into dangerous situations or left out entirely. Minor Minus wants to change that and make it fun and safe.
So how do you make it fun for the kids on this? And how is it different from other kid apps out there? So first of all, what we do is give kids autonomy. It is proven by many different education journals that we kids learn best when we're given autonomy to learn as we wish and given the freedom to do so. Because let me pose this question. If you have children, what is the best? What do they learn quickly? Is it the school stuff where it's just homework that you have to be forced or the things they're truly passionate about, whether it's about books, dinosaurs, ships? We all have our interests and we will read completely crazily into it because we love it. Minor Minus wants to replicate that excitement by giving them the autonomy to learn. That means they can create their own groups on things that they love or join these groups with other kids to talk about topics that they all enjoy. So that's how we keep it fun. The other way we keep it educational is to let kids teach the skill sets that they like. So when you're teaching something that you already know, this A, consolidates your own knowledge and B, pushes you to kind of recategorize it and make it easier to package. So even if you have that information, you might not be able to get it out in a polished manner. Whereas if you're able to teach it to other kids, you're able to categorize that knowledge in your own mind, which will be more useful for you to use in the future. So that's how we keep it safe. And then what is the typical way that kids are learning on the platform? The typical way they learn is just to speak to each other. So on Minor Minus, we have a few ways that kids communicate. First of all, we have images. So if you were to teach someone how to draw, you could take a photo of your own creations. We also have a little drawing function where you can sketch. So that's useful for things like Chinese because you can show the brush strokes or we can use audio. So if you want to teach someone music, for example, when you play the piano, you'll have a recording. Plus we have text, which is useful for most things. And I understand that you also learn Chinese on the platform. I mean, honestly, the first question would be like, how helpful is it? Has it actually seen kids grow and really like deepen the understanding of the language? So I'd say that Minor Minus is most useful as a supplement to your learning. I would not go out and say that Minor Minus is the place to go if you were to learn an entirely new language, because obviously there are some limitations. I'd say that Minor Minus is the best place to practice what you know, because when you learn things in a classroom, whether it's just a list of words or a few sentences, the way that is best internalized in your brain is to use it in different situations. It is usually a repetition of like 10 to 15 different scenarios where something is said when it is really lodged into your brain. Minor Mind is the best place to do so because you can have natural conversations with native speakers and other people who are trying to learn. It is in that situation where you're able to make those key neural links and it is there where you're able to just have fun with the knowledge rather than have it be so far removed from the real world. And what are parents' role in this? Do they get to observe these discussions as well? For all public groups, which is like where you have more than two people, parents can see the full content of the group. So this means that they know what group you're in and if they have concerns, they can read the content. For private chats, which are one-on-one, the parents can't see the content because, you know, we still need a bit of privacy, but they can see who the kid is talking to, the age of the kid, and just have a bit of peace of mind to know how often they're talking to them. So if they have suspicions, they can step in. And I understand that the second version is also being launched as well. So what's happening with that? So our second version is now under development. We're getting very, very tantalizingly close to finishing up. So we're now polishing up the UX UI. 
we're getting ready for a group of private betas to come on and give it a go. So we're due to launch soon-ish, provided that the pandemic doesn't mess up the development schedule. And how is the second version different from what you already have? So a few um, key differences would be the introduction of parent communities. So parents will be able to talk to each other and they can just form accounts, which makes their side a bit more interesting than just a supervisory role. For the kids' end, we have um, introduced new functions. We have group categories where you're able to better sort things out. And we've also introduced um, a lot more new functionality and entirely refreshed design. Furthermore, we've migrated our app from just iOS to a web app because it is the fastest way to be accessible to all devices. So this means that you can access it from your phone, your iPad, your Android computer, or any device that you have, which will make Minor Miners a truly global product rather than just be stuck in the app, in, in the Apple world. And wouldn't there be a lot of finances involved in just growing this? So how are you financing this whole thing? So I've personally been funding Minor Miners through my speaking fees. So a year or so ago, I suddenly had a speaking agent reach out to me. London Speaker Bureau? Yeah. I was taken by surprise that someone would pay to hear me speak. So I've had quite a few gigs now. Like right before the pandemic hit, I was in Dubai at the Global Women's event where the Dubai government was hosting it and there were people from all over the world. And I was even able to watch um, Theresa May speak, which was incredibly exciting. And what was the most memorable thing that happened to you in that event? I'd say it would be the dinner before the event because I was able to interact with all the other speakers and it was just an inspiring community to talk to because you would see people like female leaders in the tech industry and across the world just coming together to discuss how we women can work together and how we're able to be trailblazers. And I understand, going back to the idea of finances, that you were also raising funds online as well, asking Mm -hmm. people to pitch in. How has that process been and why were you doing that? So the idea behind the crowdfunding was, first of all, to get a bit of community support and second of all, to test out marketing tactics because crowdfunding in many ways is like launching a new app. You have a clear message that you want to market and there are very similar avenues that you would use compared to a real product so that was more like a trial launch before it actually did if you will we learned a few key messages from that which is exactly how you should do a social media post since then we've been um, modifying the way we interact with social media in the past it might just be updates about what we were up to or what speaking events i was at but from then on we've decided we've changed our tactics somewhat to share articles that we found important to the community, discuss issues, and to kind of have a more engaged response rather than a one-way, here's my product. And what has been the most important social media platform for you so far? So far, it's really been Facebook because while Minor Minus is a kid's product, we found that one of the most effective ways is marketing to parents, mainly because kids, especially young kids, are not that active on social media. And it is through parents where you're able to directly get to the consumer who will ultimately be the one paying. And I also noticed on your YouTube channel that you do more than just talk about minor minus. You talk about your vlogging, you talk about your thoughts on politics as well and all the books that you're reading. So what is the idea behind that? Is it to show them more of your personality? So I guess the YouTube aspect of minor minus in the past was to kind of bring a bit more to the table because especially when we were having few users, we found that YouTube was a good way to reach more people because rather than downloading an app, you can just browse and you'll wind up being able to watch it. And YouTube is a community where 
kids are at. If it's just watching nursery rhymes or cartoons, most children are on there, and we wanted to be able to reach more children rather than just parents through Facebook. And we've talked about community quite a bit, and I wonder, could you share with us what the Hong Kong entrepreneur community is like? I found that the Hong Kong startup community is one of the most supportive networks you'll find out there. I honestly think that if I were in a different place, a different country, a different city, I probably wouldn't have been able to start minor miners. Why is that the case? Well, in Hong Kong, our startup community is very well connected and still fairly small. Hong Kong only has about seven million people. You're bound to bump into each other at some point. This means that everyone has an incentive to work with each other, and everyone is so incredibly supportive of you. They took a ten-year-old kid seriously. That is really saying something about these people. And it was due to them helping me out, giving me tips along the way, that made me think that this is something that I can do, and something that I really ought to do because minor minus can make a difference and is going to be a very good、um, product for kids. And what was the biggest takeaway from all of your conversations with the startup community members? I think don't be afraid to talk to others because. I've bumped into many people, and even if the first initial conversation wasn't necessarily productive for either side, it is that initial connection that allows for more collaboration down the road, or even just a heads up of what to do and what not to do if you're going to do a similar idea. For example, at one point, Minor Minus was thinking of shifting our product to be like five to ten seconds, very short videos to teach a concept. Like, here is a pair of glasses. It was through someone else's、um, tip-off where we discovered that musically, the predecessor to TikTok actually started with that idea of creating very short educational videos, but that didn't work because people found it boring. If it wasn't for that tip-off, my brother and I would have probably spent months taking these short videos that would have been boring and just unwatchable to anyone else. And you mentioned your brother because your brother is your employee. Is that right? So, what is it like working with your brother? <laughs> Alexis is honestly great. I remember when. A few years ago, when I go to different、um, meetings, and if he'd come, he'd always introduce himself as, "Hi, I'm Alexis Yip, and I'm the CPO of Minor Miners." When you'd ask him what the CPO is, he'd say, "This chief prank officer." Oh, <laughs> I mean, you've got so many ranks now, so that is completely valid as a designation. <laughs> Breaking the tension is something he does excellently. <laughs> Amazing. And do you ever find people treating you as a child? Would you rather? They treat you as an adult. People treat me as a kid. Sometimes I get that. I'm 15, but I prefer being treated as an adult because I've had some experiences. I'm still learning, but that doesn't mean you should count me out as immature. Do you have any like misconception you'd like to clear about child entrepreneurs? I'd say that honestly, there's not that many of us. So I just say just. Talk to us as human beings, and、yeah. we will just show you what we've got. And if you don't believe us, either prove you right or wrong. And I think a lot of people listening to this would think, okay, you are doing all these amazing things, but how are you balancing with schoolwork? So, what does your schedule normally look like? Does it feel overwhelming sometimes? Honestly, not really. The most overwhelming thing for me is sometimes Latin homework. So my day usually starts at six a.m. I'll take the dog out for a bit because it's early in the morning. My dog hates tiny dogs, so it's a good time to take him down. Then by the time I get up, I'll still have about an hour or two before school, where I can work on homework and just sort out the studying for the time being. My school has a pretty good policy on homework, so there's very rarely 
that much to do outside of school hours. So it is after 4pm where I'll be working on minor minors, having meetings, having podcast interviews, for example, or just um, doing what needs to be sorted out. And I personally deal with my tasks on a, on a piece of paper in my room. I'll just have everything written down of what needs to be completed. Emails to reply to, a book to read, articles to look through, and just deal with it in order of priority. As long as you're doing something, you're not going to fall that far behind. And do you get to meet up with your peers a lot? Because I understand you're homeschooling. So what is that like? My two best friends are also homeschoolers and we WhatsApp a lot. One of my friends is in Australia, so we tend to FaceTime her from time to time. And we just chat with each other like um, any other teenager would. Especially given the pandemic, we probably engage in the same way everyone else does, whether it's just WhatsApping, video calling, using Discord, for example. There are always ways to connect with each other and it's just taking initiative. Is there anything you miss from just going to a school? Honestly, not really. Well, other than a library, of course. Homeschooling has been a lot better for me in general. And you mentioned COVID. So how has that impacted you and Minor Minus? So honestly, my life hasn't changed that much. When I was doing homeschooling with uh, online when I first started homeschooling, I spent a year doing a self-study thing where I'd submit assignments to teachers online. And my life isn't different from that in any tangible way. It is still sitting at home doing my assignments and being here. So personally, it hasn't affected me too much. In terms of minor minors, honestly, our tech development has been severely delayed by the pandemic due to just how badly it's impacted everyone. And on the other hand, the pandemic can be a good opportunity for minor minors because of how everyone is recognizing that the education system as it is today needs to shift. We can see how inflexible it is and how online education is potentially the only avenue we have for the future. This means that minor minors can occupy a unique role because we want to offer something entirely different where kids have a peer-to-peer environment, which is productive and fun. This means that we're able to launch in a situation where everyone's looking for these options. And I believe that minor minors can be a good way to fill that gap between fun and, you know, just school. I'm just wondering, is there anyone else who's offering a product similar to minor minors? Honestly, not really. The closest you've got is people trying to exchange languages by talking to each other. And that's just for adults. For kids, there really is no truly social place where we can engage with each other without it being limited to people you already know. Or it's lacking the education aspect entirely. We're able to uniquely mesh these different aspects together to create the product Minor Minus is. Yeah, and what is very unique about Minor Minus is that it was by a kid for kids. And obviously, you know, you're growing. And how do you see the future of Minor Minus with you? Like when you're older, like can you still understand what a child is coming from? Yeah, I get that. I mean, I'm 15. I'm turning 16 in February. I'm just getting older. But I'd say that minor minus is something that I continue to be passionate about because I honestly think it has the potential to make a true tangible change. The only question is um, how far I will be able to take it. I want to do as much minor minus as, as possible. But I also recognize that there might come a day where I personally might not be the best person to take it forward, whether it's because of, I don't know, work commitments, <laughs> we're talking about 10 years in the future or something, or if I just simply don't have the business acumen to take a big company forward. I recognize that and I want to take minor minus as far as I can. But if there comes a point where 
I need to take a step back and just let someone else take the driver's seat. I will do that for the sake of minor minors. And one of the things you've also alluded to slightly is that you read a lot, you love reading and just expanding your knowledge. So this is probably a question you face all the time. What are your favorite things to read and learn from? I like this question because usually people ask me, what's your favorite book? Which is impossible to answer. I personally love reading history books. And um, in my room right now, I have two shelves. I've been divvying it up into categories and I've completely blown past my history shelf and I'm stowing my history books in these little nooks and crannies everywhere. I just finished reading A History of Terrorism, which is quite interesting because it is a social phenomenon that has existed for virtually as long as human beings have. And it is interesting for me to see what leads people to extremist views and what leads you to act upon them. And I think that history, um, if I were to use an often quoted bit from Mark Twain. History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Probably paraphrasing there. I definitely agree with that because human nature fundamentally has not changed. And understanding behavioral patterns in the past helps us map out what will come. And that's why I love reading history so much. And I understand one of your idols is Gary Vee. So how did you come to discover him? What is it that draws you to him? Well, I came across Gary Vee a few years ago when my mum was listening to his podcast. And being, I think, 11 at the time, I came to the conclusion that if I am working on minor minors, I ought to know as much as startups as I can. So I wound up reading his books. I wound up listening to podcasts from him. And I just liked his no-nonsense attitude that if you're going to do it, just cut out um, all the fluffy stuff and, you know, just get down to the business. That's an attitude I really respect. And tell us one thing that people probably don't know since there's so much that's written about you. Just how quiet I am. Because <laughs> as I have minor minors, I'm just the type who curls up in my room and reads with a cat on my lap. Brilliant. So I normally end off my interviews with these questions. So firstly, do you feel that you have found your why at the age of 15? I don't think anyone can say that they found their reason existence. Because as you grow, as you enter different stages of life, you will come to new conclusions. But for now, I found it. And what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? I just want to be a force of good change and to make sure that I'm able to truly solve the problems that can be solved. And what do you think are the most important qualities a successful person should have? Definitely curiosity. It requires you to look at the world critically to come up with the problems that need to be solved. And it takes the creativity to take your probing and be able to come up with tangible ways to make it better. And where can people go to connect with you and find out more about what you're doing? My personal Instagram handle is Hillary Yip, and you can find Minor Miners on pretty much any social media platform. Well, thank you so much, Hillary, for this amazing interview. Thank you so much. It's been great to talk to you. And that was the end of episode 13. The show notes can be found at sothisismywhy.com forward slash 13, which includes the transcript and links to everything we just talked about. Let me know what you've learned by going to Apple Podcasts to leave a review and subscribe and also take a screenshot of today's episode on Instagram and tag me at so this is my why and Hillary Yip with the hashtag so this is my why. If you want to hang out, we also have a private Facebook group to keep the conversation going and some of our podcast guests who have appeared previously will be showing up for a limited time to answer any of your burning questions. To join, just head over to Facebook and look for so this is my why. And stay tuned for episode 13, which drops next Sunday, because as we mentioned earlier, we will be meeting Hillary's mother, 
Joey Law, who spent 12 years in the Hong Kong police force, including a stint as part of the bond disposal unit. We talked about what it was like balancing a career with having young children, how she came to discover and dealt with the bullying that Hillary very unfortunately faced, why she is an advocate of homeschooling, and also what it's like being a mother while supporting her children in building up Minor Minus to what it is today. I have so much respect and admiration for what Joey has done and continues to do, and I can't wait to share her story with you next Sunday.